Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Oz Business Australia's only live streaming business markets channel. Great to have your company just gone midday on a Thursday afternoon. That means it's time for the call. 10 stocks suggested by you, analysed by two of our experts on the panel here, all in 60 minutes. So hold on tight because it's a great list of uh, stocks that you've suggested today, a really diverse list, and uh, great to have on the panel today, Howard Coleman from Team Invest. Howard, welcome back. Good to see you. Oh, uh, great to be with you again, David. Uh, good to be here. And also Claude Walker from A Rich Life in the studio for the first time. I had just always imagined him just as a screen character, but now welcome to the Brangaroo Studios, Claude. Great to see you. Yeah, likewise. It's great to be here. Our first one is um, comes from Jack. Thank you for this suggestion, Jack. Um, oil Search, uh, one of our uh, big oil producing companies here in Australia, interestingly came out with a big announcement yesterday saying they're slashing costs because of the, uh, the low value of the oil price, um, even though it's around $40 a barrel at the moment, which is a lot higher than it was uh, sort of four weeks ago, five weeks ago, they're acting a third of their workforce. Uh, Howard, uh, what's your view on oil search? I mean, uh, the, the problem with uh, oil companies always around the world is they're hugely capital intensive. They're even more capital intensive than the equivalent of the VHP Rio's Fortescue's. So this is a hugely capital intensive company that's got to raise vast quantities of money from shareholders um, in the hope that when they're selling the oil down the track or the gas down the track, that they will get enough for it to be able to pay for all of that money that they raised and give a reasonable return on that money. And that isn't all that often the case. If we look at uh, oil search over the last uh, years, um, its earnings per share are lower t- or about the same today as they were in 2014, and the oil price is now on its way down. Um, their return on equity over 10 years has never exceeded 10%. Now, that's not a good sign because if the return on equity averages, what's it, probably about 6 averages about 6%, that's all you're going to get out of that company between capital gains and um, uh, dividends in the long term you can't get more than the return on equity so um, that's going to put a cap on your returns at about six percent a year it's also like most capital intensive companies got a fair bit of debt so um, it depends what you think about the oil price um, obviously with them and many other shell uh, BP, all sorts of oil companies have announced that they're cutting their um, exploration budgets. Now, that means somewhere like four or five years down the track, we'll have the next peak oil, which I think will be my seventh peak oil that I've had in my (laughs) investing life. 
um, each one of which turned not to be a peak, but was a temporary peak because there was very little exploration, sorry, exploration done in the years before. So um, if you really believe oil prices are going to rocket up at the next peak oil and you're prepared to hold it that long, you may get a bit of a better return. But oil companies are almost never wealth winners. Most of the time, they capital killers for investors. Yep. Okay. Um, Corb, what do you think of oil? So, and so the problem with the oil price, it's how do you control, isn't it? It's sort of the Saudis are keeping oil prices low now because they want to push the American shale oil uh, producers out of business um, and tighten the oil market up. Yeah, that's right. And so also for um, oil search, as I understand it, a big part of their business is L- uh, LNG, LNG too, which yeah. is the gas, which is, of course does trade similar to the oil price. Yeah. Um, I think, look, probably the reason that somebody would be interested in oil search at the moment is because they think or won't want the oil price to go up and they, they think this is a way to invest in uh, benefiting from that. That's not a bet that I'd be making right now just because we have this huge, massive global trend towards work from home that I think is going to reduce demand for oil uh, for, for a year or more. So I don't think that now's the time to do that. I could be wrong, of course. It's just simply not my game and I've got no idea what the oil price is going to do. So yeah. it's not something I want to bet on. But the other thing that I would mention about um, oil search is at the moment, they're basically in cost cutting mode. They're trying to get their cost of production down they've raised capital, they're acting in a way that makes me think that they are not particularly strong. So from a sociological perspective, if you believe that these guys make it through these difficult times, and I think they will, then probably over the long term, they do have a higher share price. However, that's a kind of contrarian play that I am not well known for. It's not something that I practice my hand at very often. And so it's definitely something I would avoid. Okay, all right, Uh, a note for oil search. Uh, Thanks for the uh, suggestion, Jack. Claude, another retailer. Let's go from Temple and Webster to a, uh, a more traditional retailer, but certainly has been marketing itself everywhere <laughs> during the uh, during the slowdown. Um, Harvey Norman, great brand name, right around the country, overseas interests as well, throughout Asia and, and Eastern Europe. Of course, Jerry Harvey, uh, Harvey and Katie Page are the drivers of the business. Uh, suggested by Melissa. What do you think of Harvey Norman? Well, I'll go easy out of uh, respect for my elders, but uh, <laughs> if we look at the long-term share price of Harvey Norman, ten, 10 years ago, I think their share price was trading at about $3.10, and mm. now it's trading about $3.60. So if we just take a step back and say, what has this business achieved over 10 years in terms of uh, making an improvement to the value of the actual business, I would say not a lot. Yes, it has paid dividends, and it might be an appropriate dividend stock, yeah. Um, the founder definitely takes money out of the company via dividends. So yeah, totally makes sense as a dividend stock. But I don't see a lot of value creation happening over the long term to shareholders. And on top of that, uh, we do see like quite random behavior uh, without apology, you know, investing in things like dairy farms and stuff, which then a couple of years later just cause you know, massive tens of millions of dollars uh, write-offs for shareholders. This is just not at all what I look for in the right. companies I want to invest in. It's not the... It's not the sort of organic growth of the business. While Harvey Norman's been buying dairy farms, you know, Temple and Webster's been um, yeah. 
building this amazing audience of younger purchasers who will be still purchasing off the website in two decades. Mm-hmm. And a company like Redbubble, who, which is also a retailer, dropshipper like Temple and Webster, that, that's been growing worldwide and building this network of you know, artists and stuff like that. They're creating, both of those companies are trying to create a business that I think is more appropriate for the next 10 years. Yep. Now, I don't think Harvey Norman's going to die, yep. but I don't see it being a business model that is particularly well suited to the next 10 years, next 20 years. Mm. And as a result, um, I see this being a place that your capital won't earn great returns. Right. Okay. All right. And that's um, Claude being polite. Um, <laughs> it is. It really is. Um, Howard, what do you think of Harvey Norman? Yeah, um, I mean, a, a lot of what Claude says, I obviously agree with. Uh, in the last 10 years, the reason the share price hasn't risen very much is the earnings haven't risen very much. Uh, it, you know, it was earning 26 cents a share 10 years ago. It's now earning 32 cents a share. Well, that's beating inflation, but not by much uh, over the last 10 years. So you're not going to get an appreciating share price when the earnings per share isn't growing in the long term. Uh, in order for the Uh, share price to grow, uh, either the P-E ratio has to go up or the earnings per share has to go up and the P-E ratio, other than when markets get a bit irrational one way or the other, normally only goes up because the company's growing faster. Now, the one positive uh, uh, about Harvey Norman is they announced uh, in the last couple of days that their profit before tax for the last half year, ending 30th of June, is expected to be about 20% more than the corresponding period the year before. Now, um, that's quite surprising when you consider the coronavirus and it obviously shows that a lot of people did some digital shopping through them as well as coming into their stores during that time. Um, but like Claude, not a company that I would get enthusiastic about. Its return on equity is marginally above 10% historically. Um, its debt levels are okay, but the earnings are really going nowhere. And Jerry Harvey does do things um, that he sees in his own best interests rather than necessarily what our team invest members would agree is always in the best interests of them (laughs) as shareholders. So it's one that, you know, I admire Jerry for being prepared to be controversial, um, but it's not one that uh, team invest members feel enthusiastic about. All right, Melissa, thank you for the suggestion. There's the analyst, both Howard and Claude being very diplomatic, but uh, I think getting the message through pretty clearly. Um, Our third stock, um, uh, Howard, is being suggested by Don. Now, this is Macquarie Telecom Group. Uh, No relation to Macquarie Bank or anything like that. Big Australian data centre. They're into government cybersecurity. Um, Certainly a if you like, a, a wholesale telco company, isn't it, with uh, with offices right around the country? Yeah, and the data centres, which are quite yeah. capital intensive. So, um, yeah, interesting thing about them, return on equity the last three years uh, has been okay. Before that, it wasn't. But over the last three years, it's been about 15%. So that's quite good. No debt, um, but that's because periodically they've raised some capital as well. But their earnings over the last three years of earnings per share, not total profits, but earnings per share, have stayed static. They earned about 68 cents in 2017, uh, 79 cents in 2018, 77 cents in 2019. So there isn't really much upward movement in earnings per share there. Yeah, but look at the share price just in the last month or two. It's had a big spike up to 44 bucks, hasn't it? 
and I'm sure what that is is people feeling that with everybody working, or so many people, I shouldn't say everybody, working from home, um, that they'll have a lot more throughput through their data centers and more need for their data centers. But data centers are expensive, so they're going to have to pump a lot of money in. Their capital expenditure every year is large. And what we like to see is companies that don't need to spend a lot of capital and can rather give it to their shareholders. It's on a PE ratio now of about 63, um, which is uh, it, it, putting it in the, somewhere up in the stratosphere. So uh, while it may in the long term be a good business, it's certainly uh, at this stage uh, not at a share price that is at mm. all uh, mm. interesting. Uh, so a, a pass from us. Okay. Uh, Claude, what do you think of uh, Macquarie? I noticed NextDC, which is big into data centres as well, isn't it? Had quite an upgrade yesterday, their usage. Um... Yeah, so I think Howard's partially right in what he was saying, like what might drive the share price at yeah. the moment, which is yeah. just generally this internet uh, theme that NextDC is also uh, benefiting from. But looking at the timing of that share price move and considering the government's big announcement for cybersecurity spend, yeah. I thought, oh my gosh. And this has actually got to be one of my favorite stocks that we're going to talk about today. Right. And it's one of those moments where occasionally we have someone write in and come up with a company. And I'm like, oh, blimey, why wasn't I looking at that just yeah. a little while ago? Um, because this is a data center company that focuses mostly on government. I think they have over 40% of government departments using their technology. Right. And part of the managed offering that they sell to government is about cybersecurity. In fact, it was only just a few days or weeks ago that they announced that a $20 million contract with the ATO for a secure internet gateway. Now, this is not just a data center. This is about secure data, about yeah. government securing data. So yeah. for me, these guys are really obvious beneficiary of the need to beef up cybersecurity spend by Australian government entities and well, probably private and companies. And ScoMo did that this week or, exactly. or last week, a massive so, amount. And I think that's what's and, and driven- As long as they do it profitably, I mean, yeah, so, yeah. when they announced it, they didn't announce what they would be making out of it. They only announced what the revenue was, not yeah. what the profit margins were going to be. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And there's some risk there. But if you look at the breakup of their segment profitability, it's their managed cloud for government that is the highest margin part of their business. The bit that's lower margin and not a good is the actually traditional telco services. And that is just flat, right? That yeah. is selling telco also largely to government and other things. And it, it's a competitive market. They're competing against a lot of big players and there's yeah. no real value out there. Here, through having all of these um, security authorized data centers, some in Canberra and, and elsewhere, uh, they actually have a genuine value add and there's not as much competition in that mm. space because they're specifically catering for clients that don't just want to go to AWS. Yeah. And in hindsight, it was a really obvious buy on that announcement and I really wish I'd bought it because it's exactly <laughs> the kind of quick arbitrage that I try to get some free money from. Yeah. Now, I think probably we've partially or largely missed that now. I agree it's looking very expensive, historically very expensive, trading at pretty much all-time highs. I'm kicking myself for missing this, definitely on the watch list now. I think right. whoever wrote in with this one is on the right track. It's a good idea and, and a company to watch because we just don't know how beneficial that increased cybersecurity yep. spend is. And uh, it's probably priced in now. Yeah. I don't know. And, and how pro uh, to Howard's point, how profitable it will be for them, but yeah. uh, based on this share price. Well, just, just one other point about this company, because I really do like it. This is a 55% owned by its founders who've done a really great job. It is a capital intensive business. Yep. And when you have a capital intensive business, it really matters that that capital investment is done wisely. 
but I feel more confident trusting them because they own so much of the business. They've never wastefully diluted mm. themselves. That's why they own so much of the business. They've basically done a really good job over a really long listed his history. I've got a lot of respect for these managers, founder, yep. CEO. Uh, it's, a, it's definitely one for the watch list and okay. I'm kicking myself for not noticing. All right, Don, great suggestion. You notice, well done. All right, our um, fourth stock has been suggested by by James and uh, Claudette's Medibank Private, of course, a big private health insurance organisation. Yeah, so this is a good company, definitely too big to fail in Australia, very important. Yeah. Uh, having said that, uh, do I think that it's an interesting place to invest? Uh, no, I do not. And there's one key reason for that, which is that the value for people that buy uh, medical health insurance is often tied up in the, the tax rebate. And so there's a government policy saying we want people on private yep. health insurance, right? So, but that puts margin pressure. If people are just doing it, and increasingly this is what we're hearing, people are just doing it for... To um, not get slugged the tax exactly. impost. So yeah. actually what happens is they're going to start wanting the cheaper options. And as a result, that's why you're seeing um, these new brands. And Medi Medi uh, Medibank owns such a brand, I believe, AHM, I think it is, right. which yeah. is sort of a cheaper white label brand. Yeah. So I think you're going to see two trends longer term, which is more and more people migrating to the cheaper brands. And then... Um, just this pure decline in, in policy numbers. Um, so, and that's what we've been seeing over the last 12 months um, at Medibank. They're saying, oh, um, retention continues to improve as policyholder numbers, numbers declined only by 4,500 instead of um, 8,800. But this is going in the wrong direction, yeah. fundamentally so. So it's definitely one I'd avoid, avoid for that reason, uh, basically. Yeah. Okay, Howard, Medibank Private. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't fool me with enthusiasm. There are a couple of numbers that look good, a couple that look bad, and then I'll chat about the business. Uh, earnings per share been flat for the last four years, gone absolutely nowhere. That's not the kind of business we want to invest in. Um, return on equity is very good, which would suggest that earnings per share should be growing. But the reason they're not is exactly what uh, Claude was talking about before. Um, the number of people that have a policy is slowly shrinking. It's not fast but it's slowly shrinking. And at the same time, some of the people are switching to cheaper policies. Now, the interesting thing is if you look at NIB Holdings, uh, another much smaller health fund also listed on the stock exchange, while Medibank's been losing a small number of policyholders every year, NIB's been gaining a small number of policyholders uh, year by year, which says like in all businesses, the best run one in the industry does well, and the worst run ones in the industry don't do as well. Uh, eventually, uh, in some cases, they do worse. So um, I can't get really enthused about Medibank when I can look in the same industry and find another company that's doing better. Um, in terms of overall number of policyholders, all around the world, the way this works, uh, wherever there's private and public health, is uh, people buy public uh, or, or buy private private health cover when the public service becomes too slow. So when waiting lists get long, you want to have private health cover. Then what happens is people decide it's getting too expensive, so they start exiting private health cover. The public system then gets overwhelmed. You land up with six month or one year waiting lists for elective surgery. You get fed up with it and you decide you better join a private health fund. 
Um, usually governments get worried too because governments get uh, booted out in the next election if waiting times get too long. Uh, health is one of the things that people get terribly upset if the government doesn't run well. So the moment waiting lists get long, you get the kind of thing that happened in England where they swore for years that um, the system uh, was going to be all publicly controlled, no private, and nowadays they actually pay private hospitals mm. to take patients mm. in order to keep the waiting lists down. So at the moment we're going through one of these stages where the private health insurers are losing overall, although NIB is gaining members. Um, but pretty soon our hospitals will become overwhelmed again, waiting lists will rise, a government won't want to get booted out, they'll make the tax treatment even better, and then there'll be a big move back into private health cover again. So I'm very comfortable with NIB Holdings, but I wouldn't <coughs> particularly to uh, own Medibank instead. Okay, all right. So uh, uh, there you go, James. Uh, a no from uh, Claude and a no from Howard. NIB, if you want to look in that sector, is probably the, the better one to go for. Um, Howard, while we've got you there, Peter has uh, asked for an opinion on Metcash. The um, sort of, what do you call it? The Aldi would be the number three supermarket, wouldn't it? Um, Number four, Metcash is a wholesaler to the IGA chain of uh, supermarkets. I I noticed an interview. other things too. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, wholesalers too. I think it's Mitre 10 and uh, a couple of other things as well. Yeah, hardware stores. And their managing director today in the Financial Review saying they branded up their online platform, which was hardly um, in operation before COVID. Now it's through 700 of their um, of the IGA stores at the moment. They're seeing good, good adoption of it. Yeah, and doing remarkably well. So, yep. uh, uh, you know, Metcash, like all wholesalers, they are being squeezed because what happens is the retailer wants the lowest possible price. The manufacturer uh, is squeezing them on the other side. And as price discovery gets easier and easier and easier with the internet, and that certainly now happened, I don't even think we can say it happening anymore, it's now happened, past tense, it becomes very hard for the, the, the middle person, the, in this case the wholesaler, to make really good money. Now, Medcash have actually done pretty well considering um, the problems that they have. Um, you know, return on equity has been in the sort of 10 to 15 percent range every year which is quite good uh, there are only a couple of hundred companies out of the 2200 on the stock exchange that manage that they've done it with relatively low debt although their debt levels have risen in the last year or so and um but the problem is their earnings per share has been absolutely flat for about seven or eight years and in fact is down about 50 percent on what it mm. was 10 years mm. ago now, you don't want to be investing in a business where earnings per share is shrinking. So I think they, considering the part of the industry they're in, they've done a wonderful job, but um, they're running up a very steep uphill uh, and trying to stay ahead. Or, or better described, they're running up a down escalator. As long as they're really <laughs> running well, they do okay, yep. but if they pause for a while, they'll go backwards. So, no, not a company we'd be enthusiastic okay. about from a team point of view. Uh, Claude, what about you with uh, with Metcash? Um, I see 
I, I agree with everything Howard said, but I see real trouble ahead. I think it's very interesting that they're trying to spin this online thing as a positive. Yeah. This yeah. is an out and out negative. Going into COVID without a really great online offering is just a terrible mistake. And it's, it's just one of those things where it's, you know, you have to prepare for the rainy day well before the rains come. If you wait for the first hour before putting your umbrella up, yeah. you're going to get wet. And basically, Woolworths and Coles have done such a great job really rapidly expanding their deliveries. And also, they deserve praise for that because that has actually been part of our ability to keep the pandemic under control. And I checked a couple of IGAs literally today in preparation for this segment. And there's plenty of IGAs out there that do not have any delivery service. And I think that's a real pity because I think that the one advantage IGAs do have is that they can be very locally suited with their product ranging. They can have local produce. Sometimes the produce is better, special. You can get stuff at IGAs you just can't get at Woolworths. And which is why I often do shop at IGAs. However, during this time, I've shopped far more at Woolworths because I can do it all yep. online and have it delivered by a friendly fellow who puts the boxes yep. right outside my and door. And Woolworths have bought into Marley Spoon and home-delivered meals, the whole thing. They've had a strategy going forward. It was the thing I I thought exactly the same thing when I was reading the interview this morning. I thought, hmm, maybe the horse has bolted. Um, you're going to be marked down for this because you're, you're admitting you're so slow. They, they should be. And this is not the fault of the individual franchisees. Like There are some really yeah. great IGA stores out yeah. there. And yeah. I'm all for the corner stores and stuff like that. I think they'll be fine. Those businesses must exist and will exist. However, they're going to get even worse share than they already do. That's already shrinking because people going to Coles, Woolies and Aldi for lower prices, yeah. fair enough. But this is even another reason to choose those big guys is they can deliver to you almost anywhere really quickly with yeah. their full range. Yeah. And it's a great offering that they've done. And trust me, I am no fan of the big supermarkets, no fan at all. Yeah. But in, as a consumer, they have definitely taken a step forward in the current environment and proven that they are actually quite useful to society. and and. That is not good news yep. for IGA. Okay. All right. So there you go, Peter. I know from both Howard and Claude on Metcash. That's our, our first five stocks. Uh, just a recap, including our stock of the day, Temple and Webster. Uh, good business, but really expensive at the moment. So uh, a no from Claude and Howard there. Oil surge, a no, because you don't know where the oil price is going, and they're very capital intensive. Uh, Harvey Norman, a no. Uh, Macquarie Telecom, I know from Howard, but Claude saying definitely one to watch in this environment because their data center side of the business looks as though it is the real winner there. Uh, Medibank, a no from both. Howard prefers NIB in this space and a no for Metcash. Uh, just a bit of a programming note as well this afternoon. Um, we take a look at the world's most played game. Footballer uh, Bruce Jitte, former Socceroo and uh, Director of Football um, Organisation Adelaide United um, and Port Adelaide AFL Ambassador, and a good one too, I should say, uh, joins us to talk about the challenges from the pandemic and why football is taking on rugby in 2021. The, the business of football coming up at 1.20pm on The Pulse. Let's get into our um, second Uh, half here of the call with our next five stocks. First up, Sam has asked Claude for an opinion on EM Vision medical devices. Um, They're developing a portable brain scanner 
for rapid, rapid point of um, care uh, use there in um, stroke diagnostics and, and monitoring. Uh, very much a, a med tech in terms of um, medical devices um, is its, um, its specialty. Um, haven't known much more about EM Vision, um, and so it's good to suggest, Sam. What do you think, Claude? Uh, I think that it, it's, it's interesting that this come up. This one came up on my watch list a, f- a year or two ago, okay. not long after it listed because a very uh, intelligent friend of mine who does do a lot of this really early stage investing owns shares in it. Right. And at the time I looked at it and I just couldn't get the certainty that I would get the re- kind of returns I want by investing because it's an extremely high risk and high reward investment. Now the shares are up a lot since then, Yep. but that is not because the company has started to take revenue or anything. That's just literally because they're starting to convince more and more people that they one day will be profitable, which right. makes me even more cautious. And essentially, I'm not disputing that there's a big potential for this technology, uh, but even that is far from established. They're currently doing cl- clinical trials. But if we say, even if this does turn out to be a better technology that should be rolled out, that is the first hurdle. Second hurdle is the extremely slow process and the slow change of changing doctors and medical professionals, I suppose it will be radiologists' behaviour. And that can be very expensive and very difficult and completely depends on the industry dynamics of what is going on in that industry at the time. So if you want to form a view around whether this can actually, let's just say it is better, whether it can actually still make it through or if the existing players are too entrenched, you have to really understand um, why that change is going to happen. Why is the current way of doing it actually leading to suboptimal results? Because there is constant medical innovation and doctors and hospitals and radiologists cannot constantly be changing anything because yep. there's something else that's going to be better. that much better. That, yeah, there has to be a real, real reason to make the change. Yep. And in the absence of that real, real reason, you still might see people replacing things slowly with something new, but that's going to be a really slow process. The medical devices that really succeed uh, become basically succeed because they become the gold standard yeah. and it becomes a little bit more urgent than just, oh yeah, maybe when we buy a new machine, we'll, we'll think about buying one of these. It becomes more about actually other people are doing something that's better now that saves lives yep. and now is the time when we need to sort of start thinking about what we're going to do to keep up with that gold yep. standard. Gotcha. So because that is so difficult to determine before the clinical s- stage has happened, um, I would steer, steer clear of it. And I think for the foreseeable future, this company is really going to trade on sentiment. So right. uh, if I was going to try and trade this company, I'd be starting trying to anticipate uh, the story they're telling. Are they, what are their trials coming up? Are they doing presentations and selling their story and all that kind right. of thing? Because if I look at the history... So it's a trading stock rather if than... If I look at the history... Right. Exactly. And I, I don't right. advocate something that's purely a trading stock. If I yeah. do a trade... I would like to have under that a fundamental backing yeah. that I know that if the trade goes long, then I've still got a good quality okay. company. Yeah. So for me, it's an avoid, but that's not against the technology or the company. Right. Howard? Yeah, it looks like great technology, but then I've probably seen several thousand companies with great technology uh, in the last 50 years, and uh, maybe a handful of them have actually turned into great businesses. So I'm with Claude. Uh, and adding to uh, all the hurdles that Claude mentioned, uh, the most difficult of which is getting doctors and uh, medical professionals to switch, there's, of course, the fact that you've got to get regulatory approval everywhere. And when you get regulatory approval in one country, it doesn't automatically mean you get in any other country. It's a country by country process that can take a decade or more 
um, to get a reasonable number of countries on board just to get the regulators to accept mm. it. And once mm. you've got the regulators accepting it, then you've got to get the medical professionals accepting it. And in the meantime, there are large numbers of already successful, highly profitable medical technology companies who will be looking at the same area and saying, why don't we develop something in that area? So, um, uh, you know, uh, that's why nearly all of these companies turn out to be capital killers. And it's not because they have bad technology. Uh, many of them have marvelous technology. But the amount of money, time and energy that it takes to get that technology from being a great idea to being a profitable business usually yep. means yep. that nearly all of them fall by the wayside along the way and lose their shareholders' money. Which makes you realise how special groups like Cochlear and ResMed are to, to have actually done all that. They're one of the few that get through. All right. Uh, thank you for that suggestion, Sam. Uh, how about our next suggestion comes from Matt? And it's the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange, which runs the, uh, the stock market platform here in Australia. Uh, you can actually yeah. invest in it and buy shares in it. Um, do you like it, Howard? Well, boring, solid business, but that doesn't necessarily mean bad. When you can buy it at a cheap price, that could mean good. But earnings per share growing and have been growing for decades at marginally more than inflation, um, added to by the fact that more and more people can trade online. Now it's become so easy to do that everybody can do it. So that helps them a little bit as well. Capital raisings are, of course, hugely profitable for them. The ASX makes good money every time there's a company doing a capital raise, and there are a lot of them doing that at the moment. But really, it's, it's not going to suddenly grow rapidly. It's going to grow at more or less the same sort of 3 to 5 to 7% occasionally in a good year, uh, year after year. It's got reasonable return on equity. It's got no debt and never has any debt. Um, but it's, uh, the only time to buy it is when its PE ratio is relatively low. So occasionally when the PE ratio gets down to below 20, which it does, um, in fact, over the last 10 years, it's done it seven of the 10 years, it's at some stage been below that. That's the time you may want to consider buying it. But it's never going to be a wealth winner. It certainly won't ever be a capital killer. But you can get a reasonable uh, dividend return if you buy it when the share price is relatively low and you may get a little bit of capital mm. appreciation mm. at the okay. same time. Uh, I actually own it in my portfolio. It's the only one we're covering today that I own. But I certainly don't look at it and think, yeah, this is going to be a wealth winner. And I bought it when its PE ratio is under 20. Right. Okay. Claude? I agree that it's one to look at from a dividend perspective. It's not growing fast enough nor likely to grow fast enough to really be a growth story going forward. Having said that, I wonder if the caller, Matt, has an eye to the fact that you've had massively increased um, retail investor volume. A lot of yeah. people have started getting into the markets over the and, last few And months. lots of raises, capital raises. Exactly. So that was going to be my next point. Yep. And on top of that, I bet you after what we've seen in the last few months, we're going to have increased IPOs as well, especially right. as it's relatively easy to raise capital on the ASX um, compared to in venture capital land. So you do see a lot of, and this can be a bad thing, a lot of very... Um, risky early stage companies mm -hmm. on the ASX, they have caught some criticism for that when they get companies like GetSwift that say they've got to deal with Amazon, it goes, yep. ridiculous things happen. Yep. That can be a problem for them. But at the same time, they've actually probably stepped up 
their role in trying to get in front of that kind of stuff lately, which is good for market integrity. And we see a bunch more new investors. I'd say that probably the medium to short term outlook is actually pretty good for this yeah. one. Now, that's not exciting enough for me to buy shares, yeah. but I can see a share price is high, 86 bucks, so almost at a, a record high. So. Yeah, so it's like a 2.7% yield right now, which yeah. five years ago we would have laughed at. But in this super low interest rate environment, <laughs> right, yeah. with a little bit of growth, medium term outlook okay. It, you could do worse, in my opinion, but again, that's not a good enough story for me to want to buy shares. But I still, I still right. think that it's an interesting one. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, Claude Medical Developments International Limited has been uh, suggested by Chad. Thank you for sending it in. Um, again, another healthcare company, uh, a device company. They do uh, anaesthetic machines for the vet market. Yes, and um, oh, so Medical Developments' main product it is anaesthetic, but it's not just. Um, right. Uh, vet it's also so it's trauma so i don't know if you've ever seen those uh green whistles oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that is medical oh. developments that's called penthrox and that stuff right. is absolutely delicious if you've <laughs> ever needed that um hopefully you never do <laughs> yeah well so i've had that and i actually own shares in medical developments right oh, now and okay. i've previously owned in the past this is a company that must have been one of the first companies i ever started following and bought shares in and now i haven't owned it that whole time unfortunately uh, the reason I like it right now is because in the current environment, I see uh, the best places to invest being healthcare and software. Now, that's pretty much always true, but usually I'm more a software investor and will grow just for growth. But right now, I'm really trying to focus in on healthcare. And as a result, I'm buying small positions in a lot of healthcare stocks. Mm. And this is just one of them. So I'm not saying I think it's super special, but it is a good healthcare business. It's global. It's expanding over the world. It has a great product. And I basically see the next um, 10 years being reasonably good for all healthcare companies due to the current macroeconomic situation. Okay. All right. Um, Howard, what do you think of uh, MVP? Yeah, it's, it's got some good products. I mean, this Penthrox, uh, which we see the sports people uh, inhaling from this whistle um, whenever they've uh, hurt themselves, uh, is, is really quite a terrific advance from a medical point of view. But there's no real money in it. Um, and that's part of the problem this company has, is that its earnings per share are incredibly low, and therefore it's on a PE ratio that is astronomically high. Um, based on the most recent earnings uh, announced, it's, it's on a PE ratio of nearly 400, um, mm. which, uh, you know, may be a great business, but uh, it's a bit hard to get enthusiastic about that. Now, part of the reason for that is they paid out considerably more in dividends than their earnings. And you say, well, how can a company do that? Because in previous years, they'd done capital raisings and discovered they didn't need to use all that capital. So they had a lot of excess capital. But um, certainly sounds like an interesting business. But as we said with a previous medical company, the trouble with these is so few of them ever land up making real money for their shareholders. Um, this one, I think, has got a chance of doing so, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, a chance is not what we want in Team Invest. Yeah. In Team Invest, yeah. we look for companies where we can be virtually certain of uh, very good returns over the next five to ten years, and virtually mm. certain um, wouldn't be the case in this case. So, okay. But I think some yeah. of its products are really, very interesting. I just, just one point on that is that, I think that in the past, when it was lower growth and not expanding overseas, this is a company that actually had net profit margins that were like above 20%. So 
So right. I think it has the ability to be extremely profitable if it wants. To go back to that, yes. but they're investing in the exactly. overseas expansion. If you just look at their overseas expansion over the last few years, it has been phenomenal. Yeah. And they're like, they have, a, they have a good product. And this is even more relevant because you have this terrible situation where you have an opiate e- epidemic in the US. There's damage has been done to the fundamental fabric of society in the US yeah. due to the use of opioids. So this is something that could potentially avoid opioids. And I think, and I hope that for doctors in America, that will be a priority in the coming years. Mm. Now, they're not even selling there yet, but if they get across there, I think it could be quite big. Okay. All right. So a yes from uh, Claude there, a uh, no, but interesting from uh, from Howard. Um, uh, Howard, what about uh, Coronado Global Resources has been suggested by Lisa. Uh, Basically a coal miner, isn't it, Um, in the... uh, in the Bowen Basin of Queensland. Yes, and in Virginia, in the United States as well, Virginia and West yeah. Virginia, they've got some mines there as well as here. Um, one of the mines here used to be partly owned by uh, West Farmers and uh, West Farmers sold out of it not that long ago. Now, a couple of the interesting things here, I mean, most of the coal that they produce in all their mines is metallurgical coal, in other words, steel making coal as opposed to power station coal. And so far, there's no easy um, replacement for that. So while we may have fewer and fewer coal-fired power stations eventually, that hasn't started happening yet, um, while the developed world is reducing its number of coal-fired power stations, the developing world is building them. So the number of coal-fired power stations hasn't been reducing worldwide, but it will eventually, one presumes. But um, metallurgical coal so far still looks like it's going to be needed for a very, very long time. Mm. Now, their production costs are, are worldwide uh, from their three or four mines is about $52 a tonne. And metallurgical coal rarely gets down below about $80 a tonne. So um, they're still a very profitable business. And they're on a PE ratio of only about two at the moment, mainly because there's this um, investor abhorrence about investing in coal. Um, so, uh, in actual fact, um, uh, quite likely that people who buy today when it's on a PE ratio of about two, two and a half, will do extraordinarily well uh, over the mm. next few years mm. because I can't see them not selling all, all the metallurgical coal that they can okay. produce it profitably. Right. But I don't own it and I wouldn't own a coal mine. Okay. Claude? Yeah, well, I think the, the key distinction there is the type of coal, which I guess makes this investable. I think that uh, the, the other, it's a different story when you talk about thermal coal, which I consider basically uninvestable. Uh, and I, I guess the main point to make here is that I probably fall into the category of people that wouldn't buy this no matter how right. cheap it got. Yeah. And that is relevant for two reasons. First of all, that is how you get such conventional cheapness in coal mines. But the other thing you've got to remember about value investing is that the idea is you buy something when it's undervalued and then the market becomes efficient and then it becomes correctly valued and you sell for a profit. Now that might happen, but you might also just have a continuing um, aversion to investing in coal assets that continues and never corrects. And in that case, well, you might be right that it's cheap and you might do okay if they pay enough dividends out, but you're really relying on that because you may never see that so-called market efficiency in that you're situation. Go, you're going against sentiment. Yep. Okay, so cheap coal mine, good product, but uh, wouldn't be in coal either, Howard or Claude. Uh, our final stock uh, called Paradigm Biopharmaceuticals. Um, 
is, is this on your uh, your medical list that you're having a, a small stake in? They do uh, a drug for the treatment of inflammation and you know, for um, swollen knees, um, that sort of thing. Yes. So th- this one's not on my list because oh. I guess the main thing that determines whether a stock's on my list or not is whether or not it's getting revenue. Yeah. I consider, you know, I'm not talking $1, I'm talking millions of dollars of revenue. That's what yeah. I want to see to prove that they've got a product. And then I'll invest the time in, in trying to see if it's how much money I should put into that as yeah. part of this healthcare strategy. So I've excluded this one because it doesn't yet have re- revenue. And it's still going through trials. It is, it? but yeah. I will say this in its, I'll say one thing for it, one thing against it. Now, the, the one thing for it is that this is a, a drug that's safe. So it's already used for other things. So it's yeah. proved that, you know, you can give it to people without causing adverse effect. So that is kind of exciting in the sense that it's sort of halfway there already. But then the other side of it is that from the people that I've spoken to and from my own reading of the studies, it doesn't seem particularly clear to me that this is going to be effective enough versus the existing treatments to actually ever see that behavioral change in doctors. Now, I could be wrong because this is not my area of expertise, but... I think it's just important to remember there's a difference between something is fine or something works and something is good enough to supplant whatever's To being... replace the, the rest of the market. Exactly. Howard, how do you see Paradigm? Yeah, I mean, pretty similarly. It's never made a profit. It hasn't got any revenue. It's still doing trials for repurposing the drugs for a different usage. Now, um, as uh, Claude said, the advantage of that is it's quicker, but it doesn't mean it's quick. It means instead of a 10-year-plus process, it becomes perhaps a five-year process, so it's certainly not short, and uh, we in Team Invest are never interested in these companies before they've proven that they can actually run a business. It's not what they do, it's can they make profits out of what they do, and this company has never demonstrated so far an ability to make sales, let alone profits, so we wouldn't even spend a few seconds looking at it, it would just uh, be a quick glance and everybody would say, forget it, move on. Okay. All right. And uh, with that, we've got to move on to Howard. Uh, really appreciate your time on the call today. Pleasure being with you again. Good on you, Howard. Howard Coleman from Team Invest. Claude Walker from Rich Life. Great to have you in the, uh, uh, in the studio. Follow Rich Life online. And um, I love the Twitter banter. Um, um, that you you have with all your members and and subscribers as well. So follow A Rich Life and Claude in particular on Twitter. Uh, Let's just recap the final uh, five stocks. EM Vision, uh, a no from both Claude and Howard. ASX, a no. Uh, Medical Developments, a yes from Claude. Really interesting company going forward. A no from Howard. Uh, Coronado, uh, good price at the moment for a coal miner. Looks cheap but neither Howard or Claude would be in coal at this stage and a no from Paradigm just a bit too early. Uh, if you'd like to suggest any stocks for us, um, email them in and we'll cover them on the call. Uh, email the call at osbiz.com.au or you can do it through Twitter. Our handle is osbiztv. Mm-hmm.